you can grab a seat. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have one. All right, so before we dive in this week, something I need you to do, all right? And this is probably a good practice for any time you're sitting in a service where we're trying to give our attention and focus and worship to God and asking Him to look inside of us and shape us, all right? But in your bulletin, you've got some blank space with two columns, or maybe you don't have one. You can use your phone, you can use the notes, you can text yourself, okay? Write it on your spouse's forehead if you need to, just kidding, all right? But here's the rule, okay? If at any point during this service you think you feel the Holy Spirit or God speaking something to you, write it down. All right? You can look at it. You can question it later, okay? But if at any point, okay, because there's a lot of times somebody like me will get up here and we'll start talking and we'll start proclaiming what we feel like God's told us to proclaim and we think we're talking about this, but then God's telling you that. All right? And this morning especially, okay, because we're going to be processing some stuff, it's important that when God speaks to you that you write this down and you continue that conversation with him afterwards. All right, but I'm going to pray this morning and we're going to get rolling. So let's pray. God, we need you to open our hearts and our minds and let us see who we really are and what's really going on inside. Shape us and form us, Father. And speak to us this morning. We need you to move. Dear God, we need to experience your freedom this morning. And Father, we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. So, <clears throat> common story probably among anybody who's had children um, that a lot of people get to experience is teaching your child how to ride a bike. And I can remember, like one, let me just go ahead and say this, anybody out there that thinks and wishes that they were taller, okay, as someone who is slightly above average in height, one of the most physically painful moments of my life was teaching my children to ride a bike and having to bend over and touch my toes while I hold the bike seat and sprint at full speed with the thought of, if this kid falls, I got to catch him, which probably means we're both going to the ground, okay? So I'm out there, and I remember specifically with my son, and this kind of happened with both my kids, is we're sitting there, and we're in that process of learning how to ride a bike where you're starting to let go and catch him and let go and catch him. And so our distance starts getting further and further. And in my mind, I remember I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, so at some point I'm going to have to let him go. Because I could watch and I could see that he knew how to do this. But once he realized I was not holding on anymore, the thought in his mind was, uh-oh. And then he started to get kind of wobbly. So I said, okay, at some point I'm going to have to just, I'm going to have to let him work through it. And so what naturally happens in this case, it makes you feel like a great parent, I let him go when I stop running, and he bites it. I mean, he just straight, like, I, I see it, and I'm like, oh, no, he is never going to want to do this ever again. And I get over there to him, and we kind of get the bike untangled, and he stands up, and I remember looking at him. I'm like looking at knees, elbows, face, all this, and I'm like, are you hurt? And he goes, no. I said, are you okay? He goes, no, and I'm not doing this. And he starts walking towards the house. Okay, so then, like, I, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm wondering what my neighbors are thinking because, like, he's walking towards the house, and I'm, like, carrying the bike behind him going, like, hey, buddy, 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 buddy. And he's at, like, you know, that five-year-old irrational state to some degree where he's really frustrated with what's happening. And we stop, and we sit on the porch, and he looks up at me, and I says, hey, man, we need to keep going. And he goes, I can't do this. And I'm like, 
but you already have. Like, like the only thing that's happening is like you're just getting like really wigged out when you realize I'm not holding on. You've got this. I mean, you you won almost 20 feet before you crashed. And then I'm like, well, there may be mention of the crash wasn't a good idea, but you know, parenting fail. It happens. And he's sitting there, and he's telling me over and over again that he can't do this. And I'm having to make this, like, what I feel like at the moment is this jerk parental decision. And I said, buddy, you're going to have to try it again. And he looks up at me, okay, and he's, he's five, and he was, he was talking about five. And he goes, so you're making me do this? And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, man, parenting fail. Uh, you're going to tell your psychologist about this for, like, decades. Because, um, like, if I, we go out there and you crash big, then, then this is trouble. And I'm like... Yeah, I think I have to, man, because this is one of those, like, where I'm trying to figure out what a parent's supposed to do because he's our first child, and I'm probably messing him up or whatever. And so I sit there, and I say, buddy, I know you think you can't, but I know you can, and let's go out here. No joke, within five minutes, he's doing laps around the circle. And for me and him, that became kind of a marker because there were other things as he continued to grow up that he'd start to learn or he'd start to do, and he'd hit this difficult part where he thought he couldn't, and we'd go back, and I'd reference it. And I'd say, hey, buddy, remember when we learned how to ride a bike and we did that thing and all that? And he's like, yes. I just don't like you telling me about it. <laughs> and then we go through it, and we work, work through it. But for us spiritually, I think we get stalled out the same way. I think that same thing that happens to each of us when we're a kid and we're learning how to do stuff and it feels really hard, I think we hit these points spiritually where we stop. And the reason we stop is because there's something within us that is stunning us, that is preventing us from moving forward. And in the spiritual discussion, there's this word that gets thrown around a lot called stronghold. It's this concept that comes from a military term, and the one place that it's used in the New Testament, we're going to look at in 2 Corinthians, but it's this idea that there's this advancing army, and then all of a sudden they hit the enemy at this particular place, at this particular strong point or fort or, or, or fortified area, and all of a sudden their advancement stops, and they're stuck there. And so for us spiritually, when we turn this into a spiritual idea, like the way Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 10, it's this reality that a lot of times we get stuck in a particular point in our faith and we go years or decades without moving forward. And we got to get past this. And so we got two weeks, okay? We got this week and we got next week. And we're going to go through three steps on how to overcome strongholds. And let me go ahead and tell you it's not complicated. But you got to stay with me because we're going to take step one and two this week, which go together. And then when we get to step three next week, the practical of what actually is happening is not as crazy as you think. But we got to start with this week. And here's how we're going to define strongholds for our conversation. Here's how we're going to define this, and here's how we're going to practice this this week. A stronghold is a lie that we believe and act on. A stronghold is a lie that dictates your actions and behaviors. So plain and simply, step one, if we're going to move past strongholds, is plain and simply this. You have to identify the lie. That's what you have to do. 
You have to make a practice, and that's why we're doing this thing where you write down that if something comes to your mind, you write it down, and you and God are going to pray and talk about that later, okay? Because right now, you've got to identify the lie that you're believing because we've got to be careful right now, okay? Because these strongholds that take root within us, that stunt our spiritual growth and get in the way of our relationship with God, these lies that get sown in, they get sown in really sneaky. There's a lot of times we cannot even realize that the logic going on in our head or what we're saying to justify an action is actually against Scripture because we've crafted it so well or it's so commonplace. But it's my prayer, it's my burden these next two weeks that within this body of believers, we start to experience some freedom from these lies that we've been believing. That the enemy's been put on you. But we're going to start with this. You've got to practice in your mind identifying the lie. That's going to be your question for this morning. That's going to be part one. We'll get to part two here in a little bit. But part one is going to be this. As I continue to talk and we go through this scripture, you ask yourself this over and over and over again. What's the lie? Because the Apostle Paul is having to deal with a lie in 2 Corinthians. He's actually having to deal with a personal lie that I imagine affects him and causes doubt within himself. But he's also having to deal with a communal lie a cultural lie within the church. And so Paul in verse 1 says this, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness, boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. See, that walking according to the flesh phrase is basically meaning that, that Paul's a selfish person. And all the stuff that he's doing for the church and all these letters or anything are his own ego and worldliness coming through to make his name great. And I imagine Paul's having to deal with this lie in two different ways. Is One, he's having defensively right to this group of people who he loves, who he wants to see grow in their relationship with Christ And he's having to refute that. That's what's happening in this text right now. But I can also imagine within his head, from a guy who oversaw the killing of Christians at one point in his life because he was trying to to climb the corporate spiritual ladder of the Pharisees and Sadducees, where he was trying to make his name great, I imagine this one stings. And so I imagine even he's writing this down and he's sitting there living worldly comes out of him and he writes that down. I can imagine it's like this bad taste in his mouth. That there's this stronghold, there's this lie that historically has stuck with him. And now he's having to address it. It's followed him. And so he keeps writing. In verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is a big concept as we identify the lie. Because we have a habit as people who are living in a fallen and broken world, and that is to use fallen and broken worldly wisdom when it comes to our lives. And so we have these lives that stick in our heads and stick in our hearts, and then we sit there and they get sewn in by all these nice little one-liners that sound pretty good. 
But when we look at the practical and the played out version of that, they have an incredibly destructive effect. As a parent, you want to know one of the worldly one-liners that I can use to justify my own disobedience to God? Well, i got to do what's best for my kids. I mean, think about that. i got to do what's best for my kids, therefore I dot, dot, dot. Is that action something that God is leading me to do, or is that action something that is disobedient, selfish, and self-centered? For me and my wife, one of the greatest tensions we had as parents was trying to figure out, okay, are we going to send our kids to public school or to private school or to home school? And I'm not saying that any of those are the... Are, are better than the other, okay, for each family, it's different, it's what God calls you to, but here's what we had to do, we had to sit down and we had to say, okay, what is God directing our family to do, and why, and we really need to understand this, because I hate dropping my kids off in the morning, okay, but here's what I couldn't do, I'm a little jealous of you homeschool parents, you know that, because when you come home at lunch, your kids are like there, but I had to ask, what is God leading us to do? I couldn't do it from a selfish position. I had to be obedient to him. It would have been very easy for me to go, you know, i got to do what's best for my kids. But God made it very clear that for me and my wife, having grown up in this area, living where we live, going to the school that we go to, having known almost everybody in there, that we were called as a family to be a light because of our particular situation. And so I couldn't look around and see what everybody else was doing and seek justification. I had to ask God for us specifically, what do we need to do? And luckily, my wife is an awesome person, and she is a great light, and it makes up for many of my sins and, and, and facial expressions and things. But you can't use earthly wisdom to justify disobedience and further sow in a stronghold. You want another one? My man. I've got to make a wise financial decision. Now, what kind of wisdom are we talking about? Are we making an earthly wise financial decision or a biblically wise financial decision? Time out. This, this, this conversation is not about, like, the, the tithe later and all that stuff, okay? So, like, if you're a guest, you don't come here regularly, you are released, all right? We're talking about this in a spiritual context, because when you look in Scripture, when it talks about finances, it talks about you can only serve one God and you can't serve both money and God. There's a story, actually, of a guy that asked Jesus for some investment device. And so he asked, hey, 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 God, so how can I know that I'm saved? And he says, well, have you followed the commandments? The guy goes, yeah, 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 I've lived a perfect life, right? And he just says, okay, go sell all that you have and come follow me. That was not a good planning for a 401k. Okay, what about this one? Family first. Right? I need to do what's best for my family. I need to take care of my family first. There might be a lot of situations where you need to make a biblically wise decision and obedient decision for your family, but if you're using that one-liner to justify what you want to do in disobedience, you're sowing in more lies. You can't use earthly wisdom to overcome strongholds. It sows them in deeper. Because in reality, it's not family first, it's obedience to God first. Okay, how about, how about, how about this one? Use this one a lot, safety first. What about eternal safety first? 
Because correct me if I'm wrong, there was like these two hurricanes, right? And like hurricane number one, everybody bunkered up, right? And not much happened. We just got a lot of water in some places, okay? And then hurricane number two, we weren't paying much attention. And so we were safely prepared one time and not safely prepared the other time because we can predict that in and out and no matter what happens. Let's turn that a little bit of a different way. What about as a church body when we're focused internally on the right now safety instead of the eternal safety of the people around us? That's a problem, right? You can't use earthly wisdom and man-made understanding to justify your disobedience. And hear me clearly, I'm not saying on any of those things, safety, finances, that you don't need to make wise decisions or that doing this or that is sinful, but if you're using it to justify selfishness and disobedience, yeah, I am. We do take safety, finances, family, all those things very serious here. We have a great children's, students, and youth program at this church. But I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I hope we're not a family-first church. I hope we're a God-first church because that's what's best for our families. And that's what we're commanded to be. And so Paul tells us right here, right out of the gates, you can't use earthly wisdom because the next verse brings the power. The next verse right here in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. Because this is the catch. Step one is identify the lie. And you know how you destroy that lie? By replacing it with truth. Step one, identify the lie. Step two, replace it with truth. We stop believing and acting on the lie and we replace it with truth. But here's the problem. Here's what we've done within our minds. We are so practiced at the lie that, man, it's in there deep. We can rattle them off without thinking about it. We can fall back into that sin that we never thought we'd get past over and over again because we've almost created a habit from it. But we have a divine power to destroy strongholds. So what do you do to replace it with truth? Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lawfully opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And that's what we're doing and practicing this week. That's what we're doing this week before we walk in here and we get to the big step three that's not going to be as hard or, or as revolutionary as you think, but it's going to be amazing. This week we got two things to do. We're going to identify the lie and we're going to replace it with truth. We're going to take every thought in our minds, every word captive, and we're going to hold them up to the light of God's word and go, what's true? Because we live the truth as believers. We don't live a lie. Because when you live based on a lie, when you act based on a lie, when you think based on a lie, it forms an incredibly heavy stronghold in your mind. 
He said, let me help you out a little bit, okay? As I was going through this, I was just writing down common thoughts of strongholds that we sit there and we allow ourselves to go through over and over again, and we need to practice looking at these false things and saying, no, that's a lie, and this is the truth. So maybe you come in here every week. Maybe you come in here every other week, and you look around the room, and you're kind of like, you go to church here, if somebody busts into you in Walmart and asks, hey, where do you go to church? You'll say Rich Fork, but you're really not involved because you look around the room and you see all these super Christians, and in your head you're sitting there going like, I could never be on their level. That's a lie. I want to understand there are no levels. We are all fallen, broken sinners, saved by grace. And number two, that idea that there are levels or you could never be that way or live that way or do that, that is a lie from the enemy. I'm not saying that you're going to be a clone like the other person sitting next to you. You're going to live a life that God has guided you to. But as far as that relationship and depth with God, you can have that. Don't buy into the lie that you can't. Don't buy into the lie that you've done something God can't forgive you for. That's a lie. God loved you so much, he sent his son to this earth to die in your place. The creator of all things put himself on the cross, allowed himself to be up there so that he could die in your place, and then he was rose from the dead to overcome death so that you can spend eternity in a deep, intimate relationship knowing and worshiping him, starting now. Don't believe the lie. What about those of us who come in here every week and it feels like, you know, like every other week we come in here, the pastor's having us write something down about a sin or an addiction we have, and, and, and it's, maybe it's even dark, and so you like got to write it down in code or something, and, you know, and then you don't really talk about it with anybody, and you've tried, you've been really motivated that you're not going to give in to that sin anymore. Okay, you're going to get rid of the phone, you're going to turn the computer off, get rid of the Roku, whatever it is. Like whatever that thing is you keep going back to, you're going to empty the fridge, you're going to be done with this addiction. Like you've played that game before. And so now you're sitting here and the lie that's going around in your head is you're still an addict. That you're going to fail. Lie. Right now, within your mind, some of you, you're going to go home this afternoon, and within your head, you're already playing that game because you know that sin and that temptation is going to come back around or the opportunity is going to show up later this week, and in your mind, you're thinking, I'm going to fail. That's a lie. That is a blatant lie from the enemy. You want to know why? Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you are free from slavery to sin. Hear me clearly. I'm not saying you're not going to be tempted. This side of eternity, temptation is a reality. But you can practice not giving into it instead of practice giving into it. And you've got to believe that this morning. You don't just have to believe it this morning. But step one for you, all right, right now, step one for you, if you've got that sin that you feel like you're never going to be rid of, because in reality, it's been decades and you've played this game over and over and over again, you've got to start taking that lie that you're never going to be past it and replace it with truth. I'm going to fail and fall into the skin again. I'm going to get back to that level that I was at because we play the level game, which doesn't really exist. And you know what? You might. 
But you're not a slave to that sin. You are still free and ready to overcome that sin. So when we fall into that sin, when we slip up again, and here's the nasty game that happens. I, we can get to a point of motivation right now where we go, you know what, I'm not, I'm not. And you can have a couple good days, and all of a sudden you fail, and you get that piled on lie again. And instead of making progress, you regress. Because the lie comes in, what's the point? The point is, is Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and there's an ultimate end to this of you truly knowing him. The enemy wants to tell you that you're addicted and you'll never be past it. That's a lie. It's time to stop wallowing in our sin and to start fighting through our sin. You have been set free. All right, we'll lighten up just a little bit. What about this one? I'm too busy. I've just got such a busy life, I really don't have time to engage with the church or engage with God right now at the level that I feel like, you know, I really need to. And, and if I can't, like, fully commit, then I probably just don't need to commit at all, da 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 If you're using a busy schedule as an excuse to stay distant from God and the church, it's a lie. Busyness is a choice. I could word this a different way. You make time for what matters. You make time for the relationships that matter. You make time for the activities that matter. And you make time for what you love doing. I'm too busy is a lie that we use to transfer the blame of our commitment. And we got to identify that lie and replace it with truth. Oh, how about this one? You're going to fail. See, there's this weird concept that at some point, a lot of us think that we're going to drift away from God at some point. It's a lie. Not that there's not going to be ups and downs to your walk. That's a reality. But there's some of us in this room that struggle with the concept that five years from now, ten years from now, once the kids leave the house, we're still going to be sitting here with a group of believers worshiping God and seeking His Word. You're not going to fail. You want to know why? Because our Savior hasn't failed. He's victorious. He's overcome sin and death for you. It has been done. Don't believe the lie that you're going to fail. Oh, okay. This one drives me nuts, okay? This is a conversation I feel like I have about once every three months is I'll sit down with somebody and we'll be talking. And all of a sudden I get this, this comment, and it doesn't always come out this way, but I'll just kind of translate it this way. I missed it. I'll be talking with somebody who was once called to ministry, once called to the mission field, once involved in the church, once thought about volunteering here, once thought about going here, moving jobs, doing this, because they had this strong feeling that God was calling them to it, and then they didn't act on it or something happened and it fell through. And so the lie that's bouncing around in their head is, you missed your chance. That's a lie. You're looking scripture at a guy who thought he missed his chance. Let's talk about the apostle Peter. Peter denied Christ three times, which is an absolute denial, publicly. Christ even predicted it. Hey, you're going to blatantly and completely abandon me and deny that you even know me. And he does it. And within a few chapters later, as we read in the Scripture, he's standing before Peter saying, and on you I will build my church. You haven't missed it. God still has work for you. Has a calling for you. 
has a place for you to join him and take part in proclaiming his name throughout the world. So stop believing the lie by the enemy that you missed your chance. How about this one? I've been hurt by the church, so I can't re-engage again. This one kind of echoes lots of things, relationships, loneliness. We have this concept that we had a bad experience. Our feelings got really hurt. And maybe it was a person. Maybe it was a group of people. Maybe it wasn't even a group of people directly, but it was like the system that exists within the organization of the church. It kind of like left you hanging out there to dry. And so now it's a year, five years, ten years later, and you're still sitting there with that in the back of your mind, and you're going, man, I, I can't do that again. Yes, you can. That's a lie. Let's talk about the reality of relationships really quickly, okay? If you're going to have a good relationship with any other person, friend, married, organizational, the church, it's going to take time and sacrifice. Okay, let's go even further. You're going to get hurt. Your feelings are going to get hurt. We live in a sinful, broken world. That's what happens when people interact with people, even forgiven people, especially forgiven people that are in the church. And we walk into the church and we have this false expectation that, well, the church is supposed to be dot, 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 and I'm not supposed to experience any pain ever. Yeah, it is, but we live in a sinful, broken world. And so we have our guards up when we walk in here and we relationally shut ourselves off because in our minds we know where this ends. I'm going to get hurt again and I'm going to bail. Can I just identify a truth for you real quick? If you want a deep relationship with a friend, a spouse, an organization, or anybody, you work through the difficulties. You already know this. Anybody here still married? Yeah, right? You're going to sit in here, and for a lot of us, we're going to say, hey, the person that I'm the closest to in this world is my spouse. Hey, the person I've had the most arguments, frustration, and anger with in the world is my spouse. They go hand in hand. So get rid of the lie that you can't reconnect or recommit to the body of believers, to God, to other people. Some of this echoes in forgiveness, okay? We get this lie that we put into our heads that we experience such pain because of a relationship or something that happened to somebody, and it doesn't even have to be our sin. It could be something that they sinned against us, and we have this thought in our head, I can't forgive them. Can we give you a quick one-liner to keep in your head about forgiveness and the reality of the Christian doctrine? Nobody has sinned against you more than you've sinned against God. Let me say that one more time. Nobody has sinned against you worse than you have sinned against God. Do I need to convince you of that? God sent his son to die in your place, in my place. He did nothing wrong. We've done a lot of stuff wrong. And so for us to read in Scripture, you must forgive others as I have forgiven you, while we process the reality that he took our place. It cost him his life. No one has sinned against you more than you've sinned against God. So the idea that you can't forgive is a lie.
Because you've already, if you're a believer in this room right now, you've already experienced a greater level of forgiveness. You've got to make a practice this week, an active effort in your mind to retrain yourself to identify the lie and replace it with truth. Because if you live based on a lie or a series of lies, or a group of lies. It's incredibly destructive. It's incredibly disheartening. It leads you down a path that you don't want to go. One of the most painful lies I see is when it comes to people that exist within the American context that are single, and they're told this lie, that you're never going to be happy unless you find that significant other person that you're going to be lonely unless you get married and find that person. Marriage is not the cure for loneliness. Hear that? Marriage is not the cure for loneliness. There are people in this room who are married and extremely lonely. That's the lie of loneliness. So let me go ahead and put voice this another way. There's other people in here that like, man, you just don't have that close friend, that one or two friends. And it goes back to you're going to have to make that effort. You're going to have to make that sacrifice. If the enemy's telling you this morning that, sorry, you're isolated and you're going to be alone, nope, that's a lie. You just got to make the active decision to put yourself out there. And yes, you're going to experience pain, but let's identify the lie one more time. That pain is well worth it for the reality of a close friendship. You can't run away when it gets tough. Because when you run away, you're embracing the lie and you're acting on it that we can't fix this. It's just not true. So I don't know. I could keep going. I'm about a third of the way down my list here. I can't call out every single thing that the Holy Spirit's propped in every person in this room right now. That's not what I'm trying to do. If I said one that, hits you, that, that, that like, like just nailed you and hits you where you are, that's great. But if I didn't, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit right now is still speaking to you saying, look, this is the lie you're believing that's tearing you apart. This is the lie that you're believing that is not true. And so this week, we're going to make an active preparation and step and practice, and we're going to identify the lies, and we're going to replace them with truth. And so for you, some of you, that's, it's going to look like this this afternoon. You're not even going to have the truth yet. You're not going to know how to verbalize it, how to articulate it within your own mind. And the only thing you're going to be able to do is when that temptation, that dark thought, that dark moment, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're having all these thoughts and they come into play, you just got to sit there within your mind and you just got to go, it's a lie. Last night, I was trying to get ready. I was trying to study, and I was trying to prep. And so naturally what happens is, like, there's this spiritual tension that comes up, and I continued to, like, this frustration that just kept coming up in my brain. And literally I'm sitting there at my desk, and I'm just sitting there, and I feel like over and over again the thought keeps coming back, and I keep going, nope, it's a lie. Nope, it's a lie. Nope, it's a lie. Nope, it's a lie. And at some point I'm like, God, okay, I've said it's a lie. Can you make it go away? And he goes, no, that's not quite how this works. And I said, okay, it's a lie. And I kept saying that, and eventually I found, okay, 
I've said it's a lie. Now, 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 what's the truth? And God just gave me the words in that moment, and he said, this is the truth. And that's what you've got to do. We are at a spiritual war within ourselves. And as long as you let those lies rise to the surface and dictate your actions, it's going to be miserable. I'm not saying living the truth is going to be easy street, but I can tell you the rewards of it are immense. You've got to identify the lie and live the truth. So here's what's going to happen to close the service. We've got some people from our invitation team that are going to come down front right here. And I'm going to ask you something kind of bold. If you know what the lie is, it can be one of these invitation people. You can text somebody, okay? If you know somebody in the room you're close to, I want you to tell somebody what the lie is. And if you already know the truth, put that in there too. Okay, because it's one thing to sit in a service and kind of like think over and process and go, oh, that's a neat idea. It's an entirely different thing to hear yourself say to another person, hey, this is the lie I'm believing and this is the truth I need to believe. So that's going to be my challenge for you this morning. Okay, if, there's some, if, if you need to text somebody for a conversation later, okay, I'm going to give you the words right now to text them to be sure that they'll check on you. Open up your phone and say, hey, can we talk? I've been living a lie. I promise they'll call you at lunch. All right, and then you'll get to lunch, and it'll be that awkward point because it's not like the whoa moment during the sermon or everything, and all of a sudden you're just kind of going to fumble up your words, and you'll be like, okay, so the, the lie is this, and this sounds really weird, but here's the lie, and here it is, and here it is, and then you'll hear yourself say it. And then it's out there. Here's the other lie that you're fighting right now. Some of you know right now you need to come down front and say this to somebody so that somebody's praying for you throughout the week. But the enemy wants you to believe that, one, that's going to have a negative effect. The enemy wants you to believe that, no, it's not a big deal. If you just sit right there, it'll pass in a minute. This guy will shut up and get out of here. We'll play his songs, and I'll be on my way to Taco Bell. And that way I don't have to think about it anymore. Because if I tell them how dark the lie is that I'm struggling with right now, they're going to look at me weird, and the person's visibly going to step back, and then all of a sudden we're going to get Pentecostal, and they're going to be casting out the demons and all this stuff. That's a lie from the enemy. And a lot of us know that too. A lot of us have held back for weeks, months, years, or decades. And then that moment we finally confessed and told somebody, it was like a weight's lifted. So don't believe the lie that coming down front and talking to somebody is going to result in something negative. We want to experience absolute freedom. I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up, so let's pray.